0: Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly. With the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion,
1: the the international science radio show. We have
0: a bouncer and the doors
1: of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths.
0: Psychology, astro seismology, magnetism, the dark side, genetically
1: engineered potatoes. Planetoid.
0: Planetoid.
1: I love that word.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolf. On this edition, the future of work, chip tunes, farm bots, and making. But first up. Here's the news. Fearless smart mice? By changing the expression of a gene that inhibits the activity of the enzyme phosphodiesterase, researchers led by the University of Leeds in the UK and Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto have made mice smarter. As well as being smarter, the mice were bigger risk-takers. Humans have the same enzyme, so the results in mice may apply to humans. The mice with inhibited phosphodiesterase learn faster, remember events longer, and solve complex exercises better than ordinary mice. Compared to ordinary mice, the phosphodiesterase-inhibited mice were better able to recognise another mouse they had been introduced to the day before. How do you do? and more quickly learned the location of a hidden escape platform in the Morris Water Maze Test. The phosphodiesterase-inhibited mice were less likely to recall a scary event several days after experiencing it, and spend more time in the open and in brightly lit spaces than ordinary mice, which preferred dark, enclosed spaces. They showed less fear in response to cat urine than ordinary mice, which has been interpreted to mean they are bigger risk takers. So this enzyme may have an evolutionary benefit in making mice more careful at the cost of making them less bright. I suspect it may also point to some of the brain chemistry that the toxoplasmosis gondii cat parasites use to manipulate mice into getting eaten by cats so that the parasites can reproduce. In the case of humans, A diminished memory of frightening events may be very helpful for people suffering post-traumatic stress disorder. It may help people avoid being traumatised. Drugs developed to inhibit phosphodiesterase may help people suffering from age-related cognitive decline and brain disorders such as dementia. Phosphodiesterase has been implicated in causing schizophrenia, so an inhibiting drug may help sufferers, while also helping people with anxiety disorders. A drug that makes you smarter and less anxious could have a huge interest for everybody, not just people with brain disorders. However, it sounds like there's also a risk that as a side effect, you could become a crazy cat person. The paper was titled, Specific Inhibition of Phosphodiesterase-4B Results in Anxiolysis and Facilitates Memory Acquisition, was published in the journal Nature Neuropsychopharmacology. Just what we need fearless, super intelligent mice.
1: Gee, Brain,
2: what do you want to do tonight?
0: The same thing we do every night, Pinky try to take over the world.
2: The Pinky and the brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. They're laboratory mice, the team has been sliced. The Pinky, the Pinky and the brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. they pinky, the pinky, and the brain, 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 brain,
0: You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. The busy, buzzing Sydney Augmented Reality and Virtual Reality meetup last month had some amazing pioneers. Roger Lawrence, known online as Roger42, is a technologist, adventurous, futurist, and speaker. I began by asking him which skills young people should gain to do well in a world where business doesn't need to be big, because anybody can afford the technology of production?
2: So there are four reasons that you scale a business. Access to capital, access to brand, access to distribution, and access to specialist resources. So the, the most expensive lawyers will work for the biggest companies, right? Marketers, etc. Well what happens in a world where you no longer need scale for access to capital because essentially everything's almost free. Oh and by the way you can crowdfund for what isn't free. What happens in a world where a five-person music group called The Piano Guys has got 184 million subscribers on their YouTube channel, and you 2 after 30 years with Sony, has got 24. So you don't need scale for access to brand, you don't need scale for access to distribution because you can use shipit.com, amazon.com, and you don't need scale for access to specialist resources because a freelancer. So in that world, the diseconomies of scale tax legislation, accounting departments, payroll, uh, facilities, outweigh the economies of scale because you can have planetary scale as an individual with a mobile phone and a laptop. So in that world, and we've already started seeing the teething of this, you get borders going bust because of Amazon, you get Kodak going bust because of Instagram and Flickr. And so I foresee that as more and more skills and capabilities, become accessible to individuals, then the diseconomies of scale will eat away. So there's, there's a couple of long tails to this, and there are capital intensive organizations, like mining organizations, that need $2 billion worth of geological surveys, manufacturers of, of Boeings and rockets, and maybe manufacturers of processes, right? But apart from that, the other long tail is legislation, because we've had 150 years of legislation bias towards the large corporate and then you've got the old boys club you've got the ceos of these large corporates who don't want to let go of their power but will it'll only take one elon musk richard branson you know name your person here that will totally disrupt that so what i foresee happening is companies and and we already see this in careers it used to be that you'd work for one company all your life and maybe change roles or get promoted through the company that doesn't happen anymore the length of employment will become shorter and shorter and eventually people will form specialist organizations that freelance to other organizations. There'll be a federation of internationally accessible skill and capability. And the skills you need to learn for that are pretty much anything that is going to give us a digital sense of the world, right? So software's really good security is really good, networking is really good and then obviously business skills, actually being able to negotiate, being able to manage remote staff, being able to work with multidisciplinary people, work with collaborative technologies. That was a very long answer for a very short question.
0: So this is what people should be studying if they're young and just starting out working out what sort of career to have?
2: Yeah, I think, I I, I was actually having a conversation with somebody earlier where It used to be the world, the case where you'd go to school, you'd go to university, you'd get a job, and then you probably wouldn't study again formally for a couple of years. Maybe you do a master's, maybe you do a a post-grad diploma or something. My world is not like that. I'm sure your world's not like that. I learn every day. I have to read every day. And I'm doing self-enforced formal learning every day. So I'm using MOOCs every day. I think that that's going to be... A necessity. I, think, I don't think there's going to be a separation between learning and earning. So in that case, then, so, so the skills that you get at university are about how do you learn, how do you collaborate, and it doesn't really matter what subject you do because the subjects that you do are outdated so quickly that you're going to be doing, have to learn them constantly as you go through your career anyway. My blog is rog42.net, that's R-O-G and the number 42 as in the answer to life, the universe and everything, uh, which I don't hold, but I'm looking for, I'm searching for it. Yeah, I think we have an imperative in Australia and an opportunity to become the world leader in a couple of areas of the internet of things, probably in mining, probably in agriculture and definitely in health. So I think I'd like to lay out the challenge to anybody listening to your podcast. If you're in Australia, help us make this the go-to country for the internet of things. Well, Roger, thank you very much. No worries. Thank you. It's been great. That
0: was futurist, technologist and adventurist Roger Lawrence at the Sydney Augmented Reality and Virtual Reality Meetup. Last week, the Sydney Mini Maker Fair was held at the Powerhouse Museum as part of the Sydney Science Festival. I attended to record interviews for Diffusion, and to answer questions at the Makers Place stand. FarmBots are our future. The main FarmBot project is being developed by Rory Atkinson in the USA. Tom Donetto is working on the FarmBot project independently, building his own FarmBot. I began by asking him, is FarmBot a farming robot?
1: That's right. So the basic idea is farming on a large scale has been, there's a lot of technology to support it and has been automated. But farming on a small scale, such as, you know, your mom and pop, such as hydroponics and stuff like that, has is only limited amount of automation being done. So the idea behind FarmBot is to take CNC or 3D printing technology and attach farming implements to it and try and automate the farming process and make it even more efficient and make it such that anyone can do it. You just have to get the technology and then the, the program, the, the farm bot itself will work out the best way of farming it and the most optimal way of giving you a turn.
0: So what sort of farming, what sort of things would be grown?
1: So to give you an example, the main thing would be little crops such as carrots, tomatoes, potatoes, mushrooms especially. And the way that would happen is you have, imagine a 3D printer, you have a head which moves around in space and then you attach tools to that. So there'll be an automatic tool selection thing, and it'll be able to plant seeds through a seed injector, water, harvest, remove weeds, all kinds of other things. And it'll be supported. The current design is to use a Raspberry Pi, internet connected, and an Arduino, and a whole bunch of technology that was created for the RepRap movement for 3D printers will be reused, the hardware for that, in creating the FarmBot.
0: And so how far along are you?
1: So Rory's gotten a a lot further along with me. He's got funding from one of the foundations set up in the U.S. He's managed to build a full bot outside that has two meters by one meter area. It can plant seeds, it can water them, and it has all the software to support that. You can literally drag and drop different plants, or the beginnings of the system, and it will start to automate those tasks for you. Myself, I haven't gotten very far. I've started building the robot. I've got it moving in space. I'm still working on the tool mount at the moment and getting the software to work on my side, but I've got it moving. It's currently set up in my bedroom as I live at home in the center in front of the window. So quite interesting times. My parents, when I first built it, were like, hmm, what's that thing doing there?
0: And how big a farm do you anticipate it will be able to look after in the future? So it's two meters by two meters now. How much bigger will it be?
1: That's the thing, there's limitations to scale with the current design because it works on rails, so at most I would expect, you know, 10 to 30 metres, but there have been other designs proposed using, you know, a circle and having one end fixed and it'll just move around, or having stacks, and then you have the bot which goes along all kinds of different rails to get between, you know, the different planting sections. But ultimately this design is mostly for smaller scale stuff not for massive super farms in the US who already have solutions for this problem
0: so what inspired you to look into this project and start to build it yourself
1: well the farm bot was originally a, a hackaday prize project and that's why I got it I'm an avid reader of hackaday so I saw this project I thought this is awesome you know we're combining you know a problem in society which is food production especially on a small scale with technology And myself had just been starting to get into 3D printing technology and buying all the parts associated with that. So I thought it was a great opportunity for me to jump on board and and give what I can.
0: And do you have any web presence for your projects that people could look at?
1: There is on the FarmBot wiki, which is wiki.farmbot.cc. You'll find all the proposed designs and all the current work in progress. So both Rory's one, which is much more professional than mine, and mine, which is called FarmBot Hammerhead. All right, well,
0: Tom, well, thank you very much.
1: No worries, thanks for having me.
0: That was Tom Donetto, building a farm bot. Nick Pozianis is a Year 12 student from Irina High School. He's with Classroom Maker Collective, based at the Powerhouse Museum. I began by asking, what do the collective do?
3: We're all about bringing this whole idea of maker spaces and maker to education. So there's a common hashtag on Twitter called hashtag makered. And We're all about bringing the cool stuff. You see here at the Maker Fair, two schools on a smaller scale so they can gradually be introduced to it. So things like 3D printing, Raspberry Pis, Arduinos, introducing those to kids. As young as I think year one I've seen them used with, which is amazing. Um, and other tools like Minecraft as well, there, there's so many great tools and it's great to see sort of the final application of these tools uh, being used here at the, at the Maker Fair today.
0: And what sort of things have you been making?
3: Me, I, I don't really have many of these Arduino Raspberry Pi things. I do have a Raspberry Pi, but me personally, I make with what I've got. And what I've got is broken laptops. I've got a lot of broken laptops. It's a long story. I've come into contact <laughs> with a lot of broken laptops, and I've been making them, trying to make them useful again. Some of you may have heard of the DER, uh, DER which is the Digital Education Revolution. It was the something under the Rudd government where they roll out laptops to year 9 students. Unfortunately that program has ended uh, in 2013 and, and schools have a lot of these laptops left over. Actually another school near my school, I come from the Central Coast so it's far away, they were going to throw out 50 of these broken laptops because they don't have anyone to work with them. So I said my school would take them and we took them, they weren't going to be thrown out, we took them to my school and then I fixed about 25 of them because uh, by you know, pulling parts, a lot of them were broken, most of them were, had hardware issues, I was able to fix them, and once we fixed them, they were back in classrooms and they were being useful again, but what do we do with the other leftover, you know, they probably, there was a, maybe 10 or so that were operable again, oh, still operable but had issues, most of them had damaged screens and keyboards, we didn't have the money to buy new parts, and they were end of life anyway, so I thought, I asked them, hey, can we, can we use these for some cool stuff? And what I've been doing is I've been just, just playing around with seeing what we can do with headless computing, like running things like servers on them, and just mucking around, seeing what we can do. And I've come up with an idea to sort of virtualize and emulate the Raspberry Pi in a way. Now, it's it's not possible 100% because you've got things like physical hardware that the laptops don't have. But on the software, the software, you know, we can do we can do some sort of some some sort of emulation. The idea is. We take these laptops that are running virtual Raspberry Pis, and use them. It's not right to call them virtual Raspberry Pis. We take these laptops that are that look, uh, that look and operate and feel like a Raspberry Pi, and then we make them accessible to teachers through the internet, and then they can connect to these Raspberry Pis using their web browser, and then we can run sessions online and remotely teach teachers in rural areas about maker education and things that relate to it. So that rural students don't miss out because missing out, I know it really it really sucks. When I was in year six, none of this stuff was around. I was a, I loved technology when I was in year six. This stuff would have been amazing. Sadly, you know, it wasn't around. I sort of felt very alone, and I wouldn't want other students, especially in rural areas, to miss out. So we've got to make this this education accessible. I'm having a fantastic time here. The, our group consists of uh, Michelle, Stanley, and Will.
0: If people want to find the Classroom Makers Collective online, do you have a website?
3: We don't have a website. We're a group of educators, well, people from schools, but if you get in contact with the School Library Association, if you Google them, then you can find out more. They occasionally run events and stuff.
0: And looking over there, so that's slansw.asn.au, the School Library Association of New South Wales.
3: Yep, that's correct. Well, Nick, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me.
0: That was Nick Potzianis. From the Classroom Maker Collective, James Lairdoir is also known as Professor Abrasive. He repurposes old hardware to make new sounds, chip tunes.
4: So there's a sort of thriving chip music community around the world, which in various ways uses old hardware. So I mean, there are different uh, definitions of the term depending on who you talk to. Some people believe you absolutely must use some old piece of hardware. So you know, the original Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES, very popular. The Nintendo Game Boy as well various Atari systems as well. Things that have sort of distinctive and quite limited sound palettes often are popular because of the constraints they give people writing music. Chip tune is also viewed by some people as much broader. It just uses elements of these sounds or emulated versions and it doesn't necessarily speak to any specific genre. So electronic dance music is a very popular thing to make with chip music because it's sort of a natural fit for the format. You have tools that will let you write, you know, really structured beats and repetitive things and You know, you can get very good sounds out of these old consoles, often with a few hardware modifications. But the spectrum is actually very wide. So there are performers who do quite diverse things. There are people who do very emotive and very delicate performances, even using these very crude sound generators just by manipulating them very carefully. There are people who do really odd genres like punk. There's a Sydney-based performer, in fact, called 10,000 Free Men and Their Families who performs with a Game Boy and a microphone who's very entertaining live. I can highly recommend him. And people do things on the completely other side of the spectrum like country music. So there are performers who I've seen people get up there with a banjo and a Game Boy and you know, they'll back themselves a bit with the Game Boy and then get going on the banjo and sing some country music. So chip music is not genre as such, but it is attempting to repurpose some things and use them for something different.
0: So it doesn't have to be 8-bit.
4: No. I mean, a lot of people refer to it as 8-bit, a lot of people view it as... And, you know, there are some quite inconsistent views on what it is, and and different people have different opinions. So for some people, it's video game music. It's stuff that reminds them of their childhood, perhaps playing games, or particular themes and and common ways of expressing things that were popular during the period when limited video game music was the norm. But, you know, you can use an 8-bit system and, as I've mentioned, create any genre you wish as long as you manipulate it in the right way or use it as, you know, as a tool.
0: And you've got a whole lot of old VHS video cassettes here that it look like they've been repurposed with some sort of interesting electronics.
4: So this is the work of my co-presenter, Samuel Bruce, and his act, Knife Crimes. Sam is an expert in repurposing particularly old sound-generating toys. So everything from children's keyboards and guitars to speaking toys and the like. So inside these ex-rental VHS cases, there are all manner of chopped-up toy parts. He's then wired those to systems that effectively emulate pushing the buttons on the original toys, and these are controlled using MIDI over USB. So in each VHS case, there are one or more sound generators of different kinds, and then they go together into a mixer, together into a USB hub, and then they're controlled from a sequencer uh, at the present time that's running off his computer.
0: Amazing. And if I wanted to try and find some of your sounds, is there somewhere I can look online?
4: I'm sure you can find Knife Crimes online. Personally, I don't make music. I make hardware to enable people to make music. So the one Professor abrasive product so far is the Dragon Dirt Game Boy cartridge, which I actually designed because I knew a great number of people who were making music on a Game Boy. It's been a very popular platform over the past five, six years. In fact, quite a bit longer than that. It's portable, it's easy to get, it's easy to find them in good nick and one of the problems with that was that the flash cartridges that everyone has were developed in the 1990s so you needed to plug them into a programmer and the programmer often needed a parallel port and of course no one has those anymore they were also quite unreliable because the mere act of plugging the cartridge into the programmer to access it can give you bad connections and that can actually end up destroying your work when you're trying to back it up so there's quite a famous artist named Bitshifter who wrote this quite famous album, recorded it analog off his Game Boy luckily but then when he went to back up the digital data it immediately completely destroyed it. So he can't play it live anymore because he doesn't have the Game Boy data. So I came in and heard all these complaints from people about the unreliability and there are various other reasons the old cartridges are unreliable. They use lithium batteries to store their data so at some point they'll just fall over and die. The connectors are unreliable obviously. And then people started making USB cartridges, but they were pretty much the old programmers just kind of squished into the cartridge. And they need drivers, so people were now running, having to run Windows XP to get the drivers running. It didn't work for people with Macs and so on. So I came in and went, right, I'll solve all these problems. And so we now have the sort of Rolls Royce of Game Boy cartridges. It only does one thing, but it tries to do it very well. So the Dragon DERP has a USB port on it, but unlike the other cartridges, it doesn't need any drivers. You plug it into a computer and it shows up like a thumb drive. And then you can drag files, so ROM content or RAM content, your safe data, onto or off it to make backups or install new software, install new sounds, that kind of thing. Hence the name, the drag and derp. It's very simple, it's drag and drop. So that also uses special magneto-resistive RAM to avoid the battery problem. So all in all, you know, it's, it's very complicated to do what it does. And it really does only do that one thing. You can't put 10 games on there or something because it was designed for my performing friends to have, you know, a bulletproof performance machine. And thus far, it seems a success.
0: And if people want to find you online, where should they
4: look? There is a website for the cartridge at derpcart.com. That's d-e-r-p-c-a-r-t.com. Personally, I haven't updated my blog in a few years, unfortunately. Although I'm sure I'll start it again after I finish my PhD in a couple of weeks, along with all the rest of my life.
0: I ask you, what's your PhD about?
4: It's in biomedical engineering. I've been working on spinal cord stimulation implants for treating chronic pain. So you implant some electrodes in the epidural space of the spinal cord, which is not a very invasive procedure. It's much like giving an epidural anesthetic, although of course you then have to put an electronics package in someone somewhere. But then you stimulate the sensory nerves that run from whatever the painful part of their body is. And no one actually knows how this works, but that blocks pain. Uh, specifically pain caused by problems with the nervous system so chronic pain happens uh, when not when there is something physically wrong with you but when your nervous system is reporting that you feel pain even though there is nothing wrong. so it's quite debilitating it's you know drives people drives people mad in some cases it's really incredibly unpleasant so it's a very fulfilling area to be able to work in and you know you you know you're having a positive impact on the world
0: Well, I wish you all the best and thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was James Lardware, a.k.a. Professor Abrasive, helping musicians make new sounds with old games while finishing his PhD. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. A big thank you to Andrew from Melbourne for his monthly donation. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, helpful suggestions and donations, to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends and follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including two Triple H in Hornsby-Karingai, two NVR in Nambaka Valley, two xx in Canberra, and three NBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
1: Chief mate, what do
2: you want to do tonight?
0: Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the
2: world. The pinky and the brain, yes, pinky and the brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. A laboratory mice, the team has dislike. The Pinky, the pinky and the brain. brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done.